And that's going to be the challenge today, is are we witnessing for Jesus Christ? If you want to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, where we will be in chapter 1, taking a lengthy section, verse 19 all the way to verse 34 is our text today. John the Baptist was an amazing man. He had several privileges. Studied Luke chapter 1 to learn about his origins and, and all of that. His mission was to focus all of his attention upon the Lord Jesus Christ. His life and ministry was marked by humility. We see in chapter 3 and verse 30, we will see, he must increase, I must decrease. Now, Can can we all say that that's our prayer? That he must increase. We need to decrease. We we think too highly of ourselves. We want to puff ourselves up. We want to look good in front of others. He must increase. We must decrease. John was a herald of Christ. He came to bear witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, to prepare the way for him. And in times of old, As kings would travel, there would be a herald that would go out and ahead and blow the trumpet that the king is coming. And that's really the role of what John the Baptist does. What I'm going to do is read um, the first verses 19 to 28, and then I'll read 29 to 34 when we get to it. So follow along with me, please, as I read from God's word. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Then they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Then they asked, Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And they said to him, Who are you so that you may give an answer, so that we may give an answer to those that sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ? nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered and said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now these things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this gospel. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the men that shed their blood to preserve this word for us so that we can enjoy it and study it and allow it to feed our souls. Thank you for this gospel in particular. We pray, Lord, that you would bless this time in your word, that it would be effectual for the one who does not know you, that it would be edifying and faith-strengthening for those of us that are in Christ. So have mercy, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we had four sermons on the, the prologue, as we call it. The prologue is the, um, uh, the first 18 verses, and really, 
sort of sets a foundation for what's coming. Um, the prologue, you're going to see that, that, that throughout the rest of the gospel, he goes back and pulls truths that he's introduced and further develops them. And so four sermons on the prologue, verses 1 to 18. In particular, we see that the, um, that the world did not know him, and then he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And so the opposition that is against the Son of God. But also, he says in verse 12, but as many as received unto him, he gave the right to become children of God. So the elect, those who trust in his name, which represents his character and his reputation. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Wonder of wonders, we beheld his glory. Just a, a glorious thing. And he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. Verse 15, Jesus Test, or John testified about him and cried out, This is whom I, whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And we discussed how that is talking about, of course, Jesus comes from all eternity, even though John was born before him. And then at verse 60, of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, Grace layered upon grace, which comes to us, and that's all from his fullness is how we receive that. And then, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, but he has explained him. And that's the idea of, of uh, expounded or exegesis. That's where we get that word. It's a word that the disciples use on the road to Emmaus as these things are opened up to them. So as we come to our text today, um, Having written the prologue that serves as that foundation, John now begins with the story of the life of Jesus and his ministry. His public, Jesus' public ministry really begins with the forerunner, the John the Baptist. And the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of course, uh, he's entered, John the Baptist is introduced by his preaching, his preaching of repentance. Yeah, his baptism, uh, uh, baptizing um, Jesus. But here, he begins in a different way here, and it's really about the faithful testimony, the faithful, humble attitude of the servant. And so, what about us? Do we have that faithful attitude, as, uh, that, that attitude to be a faithful witness? So in verses, two simple points, actually, the attitude of a faithful witness, that's 19 to 28, and then the assignment of the faithful witness, and that's 29 to 34. So, the attitude of a faithful witness. First of all, John points away from himself unto another. John points to Christ. He doesn't point to himself, look how clever I am, look how smooth I can talk. He points away from himself and to Christ. To be a faithful witness... We must refuse all glory for ourselves, all self-glory. We must remember that, that John's preaching and baptizing ministry created quite a stir there, right? And we read, Charlie read of it, Matthew 3, 5. Then Jerusalem was going out to him in all Judea, in the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confess their sins. So they're coming from all directions. Many of them are coming. Large crowds are coming. And so the religious authorities begin to say, what's going on around here? Who is this guy? 
why is everybody going out to him? And so what they do is they send a delegation to interrogate John. They, they hire a special prosecutor, you might say. And we've hearing that a lot with the FBI raid of former President Trump's house. Um, and so uh, they, they want to figure out who he is. And so it says there, uh, this is the testimony of John. By the way, this is a witness of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem, they want to ask him a series of questions. And already you have the beginning of the opposition to Christ's work, even in the forerunner, right? Even, even in John the Baptist, there's an opposition. Who are you? What are you doing? By what authority are you doing these things? And so you see that um, there. Now, baptism, of course, is a, a cleansing ritual, as, as we said. And by the way, you know, this opposition is still present in the world today, isn't it? That's why we just freely can't go to India, to our missionary in Southeast India, and, and go there and bring in lots of money to build churches and to fund these um, national pastors, right? Because the government, is a, it's a Hindu government. That there's, there's an opposition to Christianity and biblical truth. We see that in several other countries. Actually, you see that even in, in England uh, back in uh, the Puritan era. After 1662, and the Anglican Church kicked out over 2,000 Puritan pastors. We see that in John Bunyan being locked up for 12 years because he was preaching without a license, because the Church of England had not sanctioned him and set him apart to preach. He was preaching because he was called to preach, and his pastors um, ordained him, but that wasn't good enough for the Church of England. You see it with unregistered and underground churches all throughout China and Indonesia and many other countries. So the opposition against Christianity continues. It's alive and well, even today. Many think that the task of witnessing should be fulfilled primarily by pastors and professionals. The average churchgoer, not so much Grace Bible Church San Diego. But isn't that why we hire those guys? Isn't that why we support missionaries? A lot of churches think like that. Well, well we fund missions. I mean, we're, we're, we're getting the word out there. And by the way, isn't that the pastor's job to go out there and share the gospel? No, it's every Christian's job. That mindset needs to be set aside. When Jesus spoke to his disciples, he said, you did not chose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would bear much fruit fruit that would last. When you think about the expansion of even the early Christian church, it was not simply the apostles and the leaders and the Timothys and the apostle legates, the the next generation that that built up the church, but it was all Christians. The, The small and the great, the rich and the poor, the slave and the free. It was all of them collectively together because they had a consuming passion to tell everyone about Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ turned the world upside down, and the spread of the gospel was like a raging wildfire, which we might have another Santa Ana fire before the end of the season. One of those raging fires, and that's the way the gospel spread around the world. Tertullian, one of the church fathers, writing around 200 AD, declared in in his apology, we are but of yesterday. 
We have filled every place among you, cities and islands and fortresses and towns and markets and the very camps and tribes and companies and palaces and senates and forums. We have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. Uh, the, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, uh, written by Gibbon, uh, notes this about the early, early church. It became the sacred duty of a new convert to share among his friends and relations the inestimable blessing which he had received. Are we doing that? Do we do that? Yeah, but, you know, when I was first saved, there was definitely a greater fire. We got to keep that fire aflame, amen, because we want to share this wonderful news with a lost and dying world. So you, you, as you sit here, all of you who are in Christ, you are informal missionaries. You've been sanctioned by God himself to share the good news of the gospel. The Apostle John tells us in 33 verses, really from verse 19 all the way to 51, the end of the chapter, about the great witness to the Lord Jesus Christ from John the Baptist. Some Christians are shy. They're not sure how to start witnessing. They don't want to go and and get the the bullhorn or the the, uh, loudspeaker and, you know, open-air preach. They're, They're a little more reserved than that. But may I make a suggestion that even by your manner of life, that can be a testimony to the world. This is why it's so important to be under the means of grace, to be under the regular preaching and teaching of God's word so that you, you are filled with adoration towards God. You're given a greater boldness. Your faith is fortified and strengthened. It's like a, a wobbly wood post that, get, that gets wobbly and you add more concrete down there and it's firm and it's strong. That's the way our faith should, faith should be as we go out and to serve. This is why if we want an impact, our lives to have an impact, that's why we should care about growing in our sanctification, growing in our holiness, growing in our Christ-likeness. These are the types of things that's going to generate a thirst from the world. And when those difficulties and those trials come, you know, and, and, and difficulties come and the world sees, how do you have such composure? Because the world goes frantic. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones addresses this very thing when he writes, when the man of the world sees you and I, that we have got something that he obviously does not have. When he finds us calm and quiet when we are taken ill. When he finds that we can smile in the face of death. When he finds out about our poised and balanced and with gentleness, he will begin to take notice. He will say, that man has got something and he wants it also. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the spread of the gospel is going to happen merely by our lives, but it can generate a thirst so that then there are words, right? Because it's the words that God uses. When was the last time you shared the good news of Christ with somebody When was the last time you had an opportunity to share of the glories of God? When's the last time you were able to even just share your testimony of how you became saved and how what God did to bring you to this point in your life? May the Lord help us to be bold as lions. 
In fact, John is very orderly. Look, look back in the prologue here. So, you know, how I told you the prologue is introducing things that are further developed. Um, verses 6 to 8. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And that's really what verses 19 to 51 is. That's, that's verses 6 to 8 is an outline of what 19 to 51 is. He's developing those three sections taken right from the prologue. John's baptist, his testimony, or the, right, the, the questions that, that we're about to see, he was not the light. That's what I just said in verse 6. And then um, that he was sent to bear witness about the light. That's what we'll see in verse 29 to 34. And then that all men through him might believe. And we'll see that with the developing and gathering of the disciples there uh, next time in verses 35 to the end of the chapter. Secondly, do you use your voice as a witness? The evangelist begins then by telling us of John's confession that he was not the Christ. And so in verse 19, they ask him, who are you? Who are you? And I mean, I mean, you know, he didn't dress, he didn't really look like everybody else, he, right? Camel's hair and ate locusts. There would be something to notice about him. There's something different about him. And he confessed and did not deny, verse 20, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. And these verses really anchor as the testimony of John firmly to the context of first century Judaism. And so, as the, they hear of John, the, the Pharisees send the priests and the Levites to investigate. And when he says, when they say, who are you? And he clearly says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He's right up front about that. But then in verse 21, then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? Now, why would they ask him that? Just randomly? Like, are you Isaiah? Are you, you know, what? I, 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 but there was an expectation that Elijah would come first. And really, as you consider the uh, propoundments of the, 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 the verses that speak about that, the Jews believed during John's time that the prophet Elijah would appear on earth just before the coming of Messiah. It's evident from several passages. Remember um, uh, Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus asked the disciples, who does men say that I am? Right? And, <laughs> right? and so that one of that is, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Matthew 17.10, and the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And the, the most common reason is that the very last two verses of the entire Old Testament, right? Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will come and smite the land with a curse. His ministry resembled that of Elijah, 
Nevertheless, John was not Elijah. And so, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Finally, they asked at the end of verse 21, are you, notice the prophet, not a prophet, are you the prophet? And there, there, there's an expectation that God would send this prophet based from Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from among you, from among your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. But John says, nope, not me. Notice how his answers got shorter and shorter with the first question. What does he say? I am not the Christ. The second question, I am not. And the third question, no. Just no. <laughs> right? So, of course, they, of course they're going to say, well, then who then are you so that we can bring an answer to those that sent us? What do you say about yourself? Now, oh, let me tell you how great I am and Man, Zechariah, my dad, and my family heritage. No, what does he do? He quotes scripture, scripture that he knew was applied to him. Isaiah 40 in particular there. He quotes, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet had said. So he quotes that. By the way, make straight the way of the Lord. In the original context, a lot of these verses have dual meanings, would apply to the returning exiles, right? Which would mean, let's make the road easy and, and the desert, level the hills and the valleys and straighten the, 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 the huge curves to accommodate the return of the covenant people from exile. So John is a voice, he says. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness, right? I'm a voice. He's a workman. He's He's laying the way, making the path straight as it were by proclaiming the greatness of the one that would come after him. His role, as we said before, was to point to Christ. The last thing in the world John would want is for anybody to be looking and pointing to him. He's pointing to Christ. One well, verses 26 or 24 to 28 rather, we see the authority of John's baptism being questioned. But first, John and the Apostle John inserts verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Seems kind of a little odd. It's right in the middle. There's already been questioning. There's going to be more questionings, but they were sent from the Pharisees. Now the origin of the Pharisees really goes back to the strong ones that, um, that would oppose Antichus and Epiphanes from back 175 BC, the notorious cruel government, the desecration of the temple. So they were the ones that were holding the line, as it were. But what happened over the next couple hundred years is they became so scrupulous about observing every minute detail of the law of God and even adding to it. Josephus, the first century historian, estimated there was about 6,000 Pharisees around Jerusalem and in that, that region during this time. So the Pharisees had sent these to question John the Baptist. Verse 25, why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet? You see, the Jews understood that Messiah would involve cleansing. You have many verses, many prophecies 
Zechariah 13.1, in that day a fountain will be open for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and impurity. And it's not as though water baptism was unknown at this time. Some of the proselytes to Judaism were actually baptized in water. So in verse 26, John answered and said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Uh, the I baptize with water is emphatic in the original. Um, there is another coming that will baptize by a different me- means, and that is by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 27, remember we're talking about a faithful witness's attitude. Um, look what he says. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Well, that's kind of an odd phrase, isn't it? You know, what does that mean? We, don't, we can't really relate to that today without pausing and thinking about this a little bit, what John is actually saying. But now remember, we're talking first century. So the roads, it was hot. The roads were dusty. Your feet would get dirty, and they would smell. They probably still smell even wearing shoes. But anyway, so it, they, 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 there needed to be a cleansing as you would come into a house and the, the person that would be assigned the task of wash, removing the sandals and washing the feet was the lowest of the low, lowest of all the servants of the day. What John is saying is remarkable. Like, I'm, 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 not, even, I'm, not, even, I, I'm not even rising up to the level of the lowest of the lowest of the servants, and I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. It's a profound thing. It's a mark of great humility. And then these things were taking place in Bethany, probably um, not the Bethany of John 11, but on, on the other side of the Jordan, but uh, that's neither here nor there. The events are there for us. So John states that this medial task for Jesus was so far above him, so awesome as the glory of Christ. So we've seen his humble attitude, verses 19 to 28. Let's look now at the assignment of the faithful witness. Now, verse 29, and really this next section, serves as a bridge, sort of, of sorts. On the one hand, it continues the theme of John as a witness, but then we see what his message actually was. But on the other hand, they introduce a long list of titles about Jesus Christ even this early in the gospel. Um, Obviously, we're all familiar with verse 29, the Lamb of God. In verse 34, you have Son of God. Verse 38 and 49, you have Rabbi. Verse 41, you have Messiah. Verse 49, you have the King of Israel. And then verse 51, the Son of Man. A plethora of titles about Jesus Christ. And it's glorious. I can't wait till next time as we would unpack all of that So you see something of the unhistorical nature of John. It's such a unique gospel. And the synoptics, how long did it take before we were told who Jesus really was? Right? I mean, that that, that Caesarea Philippi, there wasn't any formal confession of Jesus until much, much later. Right? It's Matthew 16, Mark chapter 8, you know, halfway through the gospels, at least. 
But here, there's clear confession. Not that the, the first disciples really understood all, the, all of the nuances of those terms, but they are certainly there, and their knowledge would be developed over the course of time and spending time with Jesus. So, we are called to the assignment, our, our duty, if you want, is to be a faithful witness and to verbally bear witness of the light, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now notice with me in verse 29, the next day. You see, everybody see that there? So what that tells us is this delegation that was sent, right, of the priests and the uh, Levites, um, uh, that that all happened on one day, and this is the very next day. Now look down in verse 43. The next day he purposed to go to Galilee. Look down in chapter 2 and verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana. What you have is all the way from 119 to 212 is the first week of Jesus' life and ministry. Isn't that exciting? I think that's exciting. It's literally just back-to-back, back-to-back days. You say, but wait a minute, why does it say third day there? Well, most likely there were four or five days covering chapter 1, and then they set out to go to Cana, which was a, a bit of a travel. So you had a, a setting out on one day, a travel day, and then the third day actually arriving in Cana. So that's just a little side note. So John explains how he identified um, the coming one. He refers to Jesus' baptism and testifies, I have seen him. Let's read this section. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on whom I have said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. He did not, or I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing with water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending on him as a dove out of heaven. And he remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this one is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. I think that is just absolutely glorious. What did he see? He saw the Spirit coming down from heaven, and notice verse 33 tells us, he said, I did not recognize him, I'm just baptizing, baptizing, but he received special revelation, the one whom you see, the dove, descend and remain there, that is the one that was baptized, will baptize in the Holy Spirit. Now, the synoptics, we know that there's also the voice out of heaven, there's no record of that here, oh, inconsistency, contradiction, right? No, I don't think so, John is selective with what he's including, remember, so... So John has seen and testified. Uh, Notice there uh, in verse 34, I myself have seen and testified, and and those are both perfect tense verbs, which means there's a settled conviction and a settled clarity that now he sees these things and understands that uh, beyond the shadow of a doubt, this is the Son of God. 
Now, what I want to do with the rest of our time is unpack verse 29, because it's just a, a glorious text. Um, there's, uh, I think it was Spurgeon, but they were testing out the acoustics at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which sat about 5,000 people. And you're like, well, how in the world did he preach to that many people without amplification? And it was the use of soundboards and that kind of thing. And plus, you know, if you read his lectures to a student, there's a whole chapter on developing the apparatus so that you can project your voice like that. Um, maybe not that annoying. <laughs> and and, and, and he, testing the acoustics, there was a workman way in the back, up in the rafters there, and he's testing the acoustics. Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And just proclaiming that simple thing, that workman was converted and joined the church. Beautiful, beautiful thing. Well, um, the designation of the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God has several sacrificial undertones, overtones to it, doesn't it? We, We might think of the scapegoat in Leviticus 16. Remember the Day of Atonement? when the lamb would be slaughtered and and the blood would be sprinkled inside the tabernacle on the Ark of the Covenants. We might think of that scapegoat where one, the priest, confessed the sins of the people on the scapegoat and then sends it into the wilderness as an indication of our sin being taken away out of the camp. Or we might think of Abraham when he went to offer Isaac and And even Isaac asks, uh, Dad, where's the sacrifice? (laughs) And the Lord himself will prepare or will provide the sacrifice. And there he is. I mean, you know, he's obeying God on the altar. And then suddenly there's a ram caught in the thicket. What I love about that, it's a picture of substitution, right? And that's what Christ did for us. Or you might go all the way back to Adam and Eve, because remember that the Lord slew an animal, and then gave them skin so that they could wear because they knew they were naked. Most likely, since the sacrificial system would be centered around lambs throughout the um, biblical theology of that, that that was an indication of a lamb being slaughtered. You know what's remarkable to me? The word lamb occurs 29 times in Revelation. You know, you, you can think about that heavenly picture, right? And there's, there's so many verses I would want to refer to, but I'm going to try to resist. But um, and, and Revelation 5, but I'm not going to read that. Revelation 7, 14, I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Their robes were washed and became white because they were washed in crimson blood, the blood of the Lamb. You see, if you do not accept him as the Lamb of God today, in the day of opportunity, you will face the wrath of the Lamb, as it states, Revelation 6, several different, um, throughout Revelation. And then they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. So this lamb, which is tender, which is humble, there will be the wrath of the lamb. As we saw in Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and afflicted and we did not open his mouth like a 
lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So John begins with his assignment by verbally declaring the Lamb of God, the designation. But then there's a declaration that he gives, and there it's right here, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Charles Spurgeon comments on the precious blood of the Lamb. Standing at the foot of the cross, we see hands, we see feet, we see a side distilling crimson streams of precious blood. It is precious because it's redeeming, atoning efficacy by the sin of Christ's people are atoned for. They are redeemed from under the law. They are reconciled to God. They are made one through him. Christ's blood is also precious in its cleansing power. It cleanses us from all sin. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. The declaration is that that this Lamb of God, who's worthy of our adoration and worship, did not come to be a more, more a mere philosopher or a good teacher, a teacher of morality or a conqueror, brothers and sisters. He came to do something that no man can do by himself, to take away our sin. He came to seek and to save the lost. It, it says in First Timothy that it's a trustworthy statement that he came to save sinners. He came on a, a rescue mission. It's a rescue mission to save sinners. It's a beautiful thing. This idea of taking away, it's the original Greek words about a hundred times in the Greek New Testament, and it has various meanings. It can mean to lift up. It can mean to take away. It can mean to carry off. It can mean to bear even. Christ really did take away our sin, but more than that, he bore payment of our sins in himself. It's a present participle, which, which what that means is that he continues to take away our sin. Now, isn't that comforting? Having just returned from the temptation in the desert, having Christ being victorious, having begun to take the curse of the law upon himself, who did he die for? Was it the Jews only? Was it Jews and Gentiles? Of course it was Jews and Gentiles. Was his blood not effectual for every single person? Of course it was. His blood is precious enough because he's the sinless son of God to take away the sin of a thousand worlds, every single person in those worlds. But the design of the atonement is such that it is only effectual for those, look back at chapter 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be the children of God, even those who believe in his name. These are the ones that are born of God. These are the ones that have been elect from before the foundation of the world. So the design of the atonement is such that it's only those that repent and believe in his name, which is his character and all of his attributes, everything that makes up the triune God, and trust and believe that. Jesus said in John 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for the goats. No, no. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, right? Uh, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. And so he lays down his life for the sheep. 
And, and, and he's the substitute. He stands in our place. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Christ still takes away our sin today. He took away my sin this week as I confessed it to him and came clean. He takes it away to all who believe. He's daily taking away our sin. He's purging us daily and cleansing us and washing the souls of every person that is a part of the bride of Christ, making them holy and pure. Well, designation, Lamb of God, declaration, he takes away the sin of the world, but the invitation is this. Behold, behold, set your eyes upon. How do you, how do you behold him? Well, we don't look at this wooden cross and envision somebody hanging up there. We don't get the crucifix and behold the guy that's you know skinny and wimpy that's still nailed to the cross. We behold Christ through the eye of faith. He is alive. He's in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father, as the Holy Scriptures tell us. We see him, brethren, through the eye of faith. And we behold him. And those that are lost come seeking him. Lord, reveal yourself to me. I want to see. I want to behold. This declaration was a public one. John is proclaiming this in front of a large crowd. All of his disciples, all of the onlookers, all of those who are coming down to be baptized. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Behold, here is the one of whom I've been preaching, the one of whom I've been telling you, the one of whom I said I did not recognize him until he revealed it and said, upon whom you see the dove descend and remaining on him. This is the one that will baptize with the Holy Spirit. To believe him for what he has done and what he will do and what he will do in the future. Behold him is to look to him and to trust him, to embrace him by faith. He is worthy of your trust. My dear friend, if you're outside of Christ, he is worthy of your trust. Cast your cares upon him. You can trust him fully. You can can bank all of your hope upon Christ. He is the sinless one. He is the one in that courtroom to use this courtroom analogy, the father is the judge, and and you're standing there, and what do you have to say for your sin? And you point to your advocate, your lawyer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands up and says, I have paid for all of this. I paid for all of his sins. Revelation 14.1, I looked, and behold, behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. Well, a couple concluding comments here. We must never, we've been talking about being a faithful witness and for Christ, right? And we must never modify the gospel message. That's a temptation for some. Well, you know, I've been praying about for two years to share with Uncle Billy the gospel or whoever it may be that you've been nervous about. And so you know what you can, a tendency can be? Let's just tone it down. Let's soften it a little bit. Let's leave out little elements of sin and judgment and just, you know, God's just such a good God. He's just so good. He, you know, he's so cool. He's just right there, you know. Why don't you just trust, you know, and we can modify the message. No matter how appealing or how accepting it might be, 
It is Christ's gospel. It is not ours to change. And then furthermore, we should use biblical terms, right, when we're sharing the gospel. And, 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 you know, when you do water things down like that and you kind of wonder, like, wow, that didn't bear any fruit. Well, it's only the true gospel that has power, right? It's only the true gospel. It's only God's word that has power into it. The kingdom of God will continue to advance as we proclaim that. Secondly, a good witness points to Jesus just like John did. James Montgomery Boyce says this, this should be This should be true of every good preacher, every Christian worker, and every witness. If we are to witness for Jesus Christ, we must first of all forget about ourselves, forget about our likes, our dislikes, our needs, our personal interests, our free time, and even at times our work and our ambitions. We must think first of the other person and his or her need for a Savior. What is it then? that will make a person forget himself in order to point to Jesus only, it's only having a keen awareness of Jesus' worth and his glory, right? He's worthy. It's to understand his royal status. That's who we need to focus on. And then if you're here today and you're outside of Christ, simple question, have you beheld this Jesus Christ? The invitation is there. Behold. Behold Look, look, look to him. As Christ's ambassador, I beg you to come to Christ today. He is an able Savior. He is a willing Savior. He will save, but you have to humble yourself. And you have to say, I hate my sin. I don't want to sin anymore because it displeases God. And what I want to do is please you, O God. And he will come and change your heart and begin shaping you and forming you into a Christian Conversion is instant. Regeneration is instant. But then you're just a baby Christian and you're kind of kicking around with your diaper on. But then you come to church and then you get fed the word of God and you grow. And then you're, you're eating steak and you're like a carnivore diet. You want the word of God coming to you. All the meat that you can handle. The time is short. Don't put it off, my friend. Turn to Christ today. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this gospel. Thank you so much for John's uh, humility and testimony and um, fulfilling his assignment and clearly proclaiming the Lamb of God. Lord, may we think about these things this week. And for any who are outside of Christ, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.